Welcome to the Free Range Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Livermore. This episode is sponsored by the Program on Law, Communities, and the Environment at the University of Virginia School of Law. With me today is Lisa Robinson, a senior research scientist and the deputy director at the Center for Health Decision Science at the Harvard School of Public Health. Lisa is a leading expert in the use of cost-benefit analysis to evaluate public policy, which is what we'll be talking about today. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for joining me today. Hey, Mike. So, so you've spent a good portion of your career working on and thinking about uh, formal cost-benefit analysis, using formal cost-benefit analysis to evaluate lots of different kinds of public policies. Um, just to give a sense, what do we mean by public policy here? Like things like whether we should require a new safety feature on automobiles or whether we should cut certain kinds of air pollution or whether we want to ban or control a food additive that has some negative health risk, right? That's the kind of stuff we might do a cost-benefit analysis on. And as you well know, as an expert in this area, not everyone likes this kind of cost-benefit analysis. There's, you know, it's, it's, it's very well entrenched in our public policy system, but there have, there have been critics for as long as it's been around. So I maybe I thought we would just start with your kind of 90-second elevator pitch uh, for why we should be doing this. Say you, you know, had a senator in the Senate office building um, and in the elevator, you had 90 seconds and she asked you, you know, knowing who you are, you know, why are we doing this cost-benefit stuff? Why is this valuable? I have to tell you, I don't need to wait for some senator in the elevator. I get these sorts of questions all the time. Um, <laughs> it's definitely so. Um, the um, in the scholarly literature, a lot of times you see, or almost all the time, you see people describe benefit-cost analysis as a way to see um, what policy is most economically efficient in the sense that the the benefits exceed the cost by a significant amount. Or, um, I don't think that's why we do benefit cost, however. Um, usually um, there is enough that we have difficulty quantifying and there's enough uncertainty in things that we can quantify that it doesn't give us a definitive answer. What it does do is give us a well-established systematic framework for investigating policy impacts. Um, I think this is just forcing us to poke at the problem. I've done a lot of analyses over the years that were actually never completed because somewhere along the way, we discovered something that nobody knew that made the policy um, just not make sense, not feasible. For example, I worked on one regulation where in the very early stage, that would have released some materials that were potentially hazardous. Um, and we found very early in the um, analysis that the cost of testing to see whether or not the materials were hazardous were um, so high that it didn't make sense to even get started on, uh, on doing some sort of regulation or policy. Hmm. And I found that over and over again. For people who are really uh, deeply into these frameworks, um, there's all kinds of controversies that I'd be happy to talk about. But I think for the general public, there's really just two things. And one is um, that we made the unfortunate mistake many, many decades ago, I think, of labeling the way that we value mortality risk reductions as the value per statistical life. Um, if I could get in my little time machine, go back to whatever it was that somebody first coined that term, I would tell them to please, please, please come up with something else. Um, people think that we are placing a value on their life, and they find that very offensive. But that's not really what we're doing. What we're doing is asking the question, how much would you be willing to pay for a very small change in your risk of dying this year? Um, because most policies that we're evaluating only change uh, your risk of dying by a very small amount. Um, but it's very hard to get that across. The second is, I think, a little bit more subtle. Um, and I think we as analysts need to do a better job of communicating it. But benefit-cost analysis is intentionally not paternalistic. Um, what we're trying to get at is the preferences of people um, for spending on different uh, um, goods or services um, that will benefit them somehow. So we're trying to compare their own evaluation of the cost to their own evaluation of the benefits that they accrue. There are many other forms of uh, economic evaluation, including the uh, type of work that's done uh, for health and medicine where they're using uh, qualities or dollies that is not, that is more paternalistic um, because there's this idea that um, health is what economists often call America good. So you should get lots and lots of health improvements um, regardless of your preferences. It doesn't matter if you'd rather spend your money on other things. 
um, and benefit-cost analysis, at least as conventionally um, conventionally applied, isn't paternalistic. It attempts to reflect the preferences of the people who are who are uh, affected. Good. Okay. Great. So, so the just to to reca- recapsulate that a little bit. So on the the benefits, so to speak, of cost-benefit analysis, or the value that that you think is most worth emphasizing is this kind of structured analysis, right? The idea here isn't to, you know, come up with some magical number that's going to tell a decision maker whether a policy is a good idea or not. It's, but it does force analysts and ultimately policymakers to, in a systematic fashion, go through and try to understand the consequences of their, of their actions. Um, And so that's kind of on the pro side. And then you mentioned a couple of Controversy. So one is this notion of "quote unquote" placing a value on life, um, and then um, questions around kind of paternalism versus non-paternalism, and and how that might generate controversy. So I think we can we can return to all all these things, but maybe just focusing on the mortality risk one. It's been discussed a lot. It's something that you've done a lot of work on. Uh, the, the value of statistical life. Um, continuing to use that phrase, <laughs> it's just so current. It would be so hard to change the the. The, the words there. But maybe we could just unpack a little bit. As you said, what that is often about is a, um, is a small change in your, in your mortality in a given year. This is kind of the fundamental um, unit that we're often dealing with. So maybe let's just, again, just to you know, unpack all of this. Like what is a context where, um, like a concrete context either that you've worked on or you know, we can even talk hypothetically, where the value of statistical life or the value of mortality risk reduction is kind of an important part of a benefit cost analysis. Like when does this arise? You know, that's a more complicated question than it might seem to be on the surface, but let me start with the simple answer and then give you the more complicated one. Um, uh, most policies have some impact on health. It's been interesting um, to see, you know, certainly climate change, air pollution, transportation, uh, food safety, homeland security, um, all of those policies have some um, effect on mortality risk. And in fact, um, interventions that we often think of as being entirely outside of the health um, sector, um, like education, often have uh, fairly significant um, effects on mortality. Um, But I think that to some extent that's a little bit misleading because if you think about it, health includes um, uh, how long you survive. It also includes the likelihood that you're going to get sick or you're going to get injured. And uh, we do not have um, enough research on non-fatal health effects, injuries, and illnesses to have a very good idea of their value. Um, so I think a lot of the, in a lot of the work that we do, mortality risk reductions dominate the benefits estimate, partially because um, uh, we care a lot about living longer, um, but partially because we're not very good at assessing the value of other effects. You might have a a health effect that has a relatively small value compared to the value of saving a life. Um, I shouldn't use that language, should I? The value, even I get tripped up, Um, the value of uh, reducing mortality risks but there's and lots and lots and lots of cases. I mean, all you need to do is think about COVID. There are, I've forgotten the numbers now, but there are so many people who've had non-fatal cases um, that even if the value is a lot lower than the um, value of avoiding the risk of dying, um, it could add up to something very large. Yeah, that's an interesting point, right? That a lot of the rules that we're talking about, a lot of the policies have lots of different kinds of effects, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they can have effects on health, uh, just the, your quality of life, right? That is what we're kind of talking about. And then there's effects on your, how long you're going to live. Basically, those are the two general things that we're talking about. And then, you know, there could be other kinds of effects, what your consumption is or whatever else. Um, and just to, uh, you know, we've been kind of ragging on the the value of statistical life and the notion of saving a life, but I think it is worth maybe just offering, if not a defense, a little kind of explanation of how we get to that kind of language. We talk about saving a life, a rule saving a life, and certainly agencies talk that way, right? They don't say, um, at least sometimes, they'll say, yeah, we're going to reduce the mortality risk, but over a, a given population, we will be saving lives. That's often the idea. So if you have a population of 200 million people and you eliminate a one in a hundred thousand risk for everybody in that what I say, 200 million population, <laughs> you can be expected to save 
2,000 lives, right? Um, that's the idea, right? And so that's, um, so it's, it, there's, a, there's a peculiar kind of feature of policymaking in a large country like the US, which is that small things add up, right? Small um, reductions in, in risks of different sorts. We're talking about life, you know, risk to, to life and limb. Small reductions add up. And so, you know, the risk that any um, child, individual child will die by drowning is quite low. But over every single year, I believe hundreds, if not a couple thousand, you know, kids die um, in drowning accidents. And, you know, the risk that any individual will slip in the tub and, you know, and, and, and have a fatality is low, but it, but it happens every year in the U S. Um, so yeah, so there is this, uh, there's almost like a peculiarity. It's almost, I think a moral peculiarity, something that we're not used to, um, in our evolutionary history or even our cultural history. You know, we think in terms of, oh, you know, a small risk to me, <laughs> right. Or that, that very likely will not get realized, but a small risk to many people over a big population, essentially it's inevitable that it's going to be realized. Well, it is going to add up, but I think, you know, a lot of this is needing to be very careful about our language. And um, I've, you know, I've played around with uh, different ways of explaining this uh, in both what I've written and what I've teaching, been teaching over the years. And, and it's, it's challenging, but I think the key in what you said is, we expect deaths to decrease by some amount. We don't know who would die if we hadn't implemented the policy. We don't know whose deaths are being averted. Um, we also don't, um, we don't, all we're doing is delaying those deaths. Um, we're all gonna die sometime, perhaps, unfortunately. Um, the, well, for better uh, or worse, I don't know if the alternative of living forever would be all that wonderful either. So yes, yeah, yeah, but well, it was something we have to accept. We're all going to die. <laughs> yes, yeah, maybe leave that one off, the living forever one off the table, at least for this conversation. Because, uh, um, But let's unpack the term for a second, because I think it, it relates exactly to what you were just saying. You know, it's got two pieces. Um, well, three pieces, maybe. Value is the dollar value, um, because we're using... We're using money as our medium of exchange um, mm -hmm. because we could use apples or oranges or um, pick your favorite thing, but uh, um, money's the easiest thing to use because we're used to uh, uh, um, spending money on different things in the marketplace. The second is statistical, um, and that to me is really important um, because what that's talking about is the probability of dying. It's that this policy, for example, is decreasing each person in the population's likelihood of dying by one in 10,000 in a defined year. Um, and once we sum that up across everybody in that population, we get to a number of expected deaths. Um, so it's, it's a probability of dying. It's not death with certainty. Mm -hmm. um, and then the, the final, one, final piece, of course, is just, just life. And uh, um, the, um, the idea there is that uh, goes back to what I said earlier, um, that uh, all, we're delaying deaths. And sometimes we're only delaying them by a year. It might not be that long. Um, we're, not, uh, we're not saving somebody's life with certainty. It doesn't, if we have a risk-reducing policy that's implemented this year, um, it doesn't mean that you're gonna live to whatever average life expectancy is for somebody your age. It just means that you're um, less likely to die in this particular year. Right. Yeah. So, so this is all true, right? So it's, it's, um, that's what we're talking about. The, uh, one is it's statistical, right? That's an important characteristics of it, characteristic of it. And then the other is, you know, we're only ever extending anybody's life. That's the only thing that we can do. Um, and there's interesting counting questions that come up. Like, um, I think uh, let's do a little philosophical question. I'm curious what you, um, what you think the answer to this is. So, so imagine, let's take away the statistical thing for a second, just mm -hmm. to, so that we can make it a little bit more clear. And um, let's say I'm a crossing guard and there's, there's someone, you know, um, uh, just person A, who is just terrible at crossing the street. <laughs> they just <laughs> don't look both ways before they cross the street. And so, you know, once a week, the crossing guard has to grab hold of person A and block them from walking right in front of a bus. And it just happens with, you know, it's like clockwork. Now, what's going on every time that the cross 
you know, crosswalk guard has, or the, you know, the crossing guard has saved this person's life, clearly, at least. Let's just say that every time, but for the cross guard, crossing guard, the uh, person A would, would have been flattened by this bus, okay? Mm-hmm. And the, but the crossing guard has saved this person's life, you know, let's say 50 times a year. Mm-hmm. Should that count as one life saved or 50 life-saving events? <laughs> um, and I think that's, you know, that kind of is a, it's a peculiar question, but it's something that actually kind of comes up in regulatory cost-benefit analysis because it might be that we have all these different interventions, but for any one of them, you know, the p- people might be dying, um, but it is the same population that we're saving over and over and again. So yeah, I'm just curious what you think, like what is the right way to value something like that? Should we just have, you know, the value is this one person's life or is it, you know, not, you know, whatever, whatever value we place on that, or is it 50 life-saving events? So I have to say, first of all, I'm not that fond of the analogy. I hope uh, that- Just because of the statistics, you don't like the statistical part of it? Well, no, the, because these these methods are not designed to um, deal with individuals. These methods. So, okay, okay, I, I get it. So you're you, you're resisting the fact that I'm separating out the statistical from the uh, the repeat player kind of element. Well, no, it's because you're talking about one person. Um, well, that's what I mean. That's what well, I'm talking, talking about. Yeah, I mean, I think the way that we talk about this in the literature is identified versus. Statistical. Okay, okay, fine. I'll, you know what? I'll 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 I, I was trying to simplify, <laughs> but I will. I will deal with a population if that makes you feel better. Yeah. So, so we have a population of kids and a population of crossing guards and something it, like it, that. But it's yeah. but it's but it's the same deal. Like you're you've got the same kids. You've stopped. You're, you know, there's a group of them that will cross. You know, you know, bad, and then one of them would get hit every time, and you know, over a certain number of times, you know, the same kid is going to end up getting saved several times, or the same group of kids is getting saved many times, or whatever. Yeah, I think uh, this is a so so I think the question you're asking is um, so let's say uh, today we implement this new crossing guard program that keeps those bad street crossers from getting hurt. Um, And tomorrow we implement a safe driving program um, that also is going to keep kids who are crossing at the crosswalk from getting hurt. So there's some aggregated effect um, across those two policies. Um, well, say there's, say there's only a hundred kids that okay. you could possibly save, right? Oh. But you're going to save each of them ten times. Well, no, you're going to decrease decrease the risk ten times. Well, there, there's a crossing guard that's going to actually reach out and stop a kid. Mm-hmm. Like that kid will not have gotten hit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. The same way that like the, like you know with a particular matter reduction. I mean, I get the. The, and actually, I think I'm going to resist the resistance to, popul- <laughs> to to individuals at some point, some level, because if like ex ante, we cannot say, and we might not even be able to say ex post that mm. like a uh, air quality rule that reduced particulate matter exposure saved anyone's, saved any individual's life. Like we, c- we can't actually attribute at the level of an individual that, mm. you know, something like this happened, that, that anybody was even benefited, right? But- if we think that reducing particulate matter pollution, or if we think that particulate matter pollution causes people to die, right? That mm-hmm. exposure to particulate matter pollution causes, you know, heart attacks. Mm-hmm. And we cut particulate matter exposure. And mm-hmm. we could even say, let's even imagine, which would be very nice. Like we have a nice clean experiment where we can say, okay, in this population here, particular matter exposure went down by X amount. And now instead of, you know, on average, what we were seeing is a thousand heart attacks every year, which of course with some noise. And now we're seeing 900 heart attacks every year in this population or in fatal heart attacks. So we could say there's a hundred people and we can't say what hundred people would have died, mm-hmm. but we can say that there are people walking around Right there, and there really are. There's someone walking around, <laughs> you know, in the in a counterfactual where we where we had the same level of pollution, where we hadn't cut the pollution. In that counterfactual, there's someone walking around. Um, sorry, in the real world, there's someone walking around who, in the counterfactual, would not be walking around. I think we have to think that if we think that these policies are actually having effects in the world, we have to think that there's a counterfactual in which someone who is now alive is dead. Well, or, or, yeah. Um, I think, um, 
you know, the problem with a lot of this stuff is that simplifying it um, takes away um, some of the clarity about what the uh, concepts are. Because first of all, I think, going back to the crossing guard for a moment, you've taken out the idea of risk. Um, so let's say we've, the crossing guard, there's a 90% chance each time the crossing guard um, yeah, grabs that there kid. There you go. Right? Something like that. Yeah. Add that to um, it. Or maybe there's only a 20% chance. And Whatever it is. Right. There's you know a 90% or a 20% chance that that kid is actually going to do something dangerous. Um, the um, if, you know the in the real world, um, uh, these things happen in a very complicated way. Um, the other thing is that the one key piece of the VSL definition that a lot of people miss is that it's in a defined time period. Um, so um, you would, for your crossing guard example, um, we would want to talk about the chance that that crossing guard or the, maybe this policy, this crossing guard policy, um, reduces the risk of um, X number of deaths within a month or within a year. And I think that those two things take care of some of your concern about about overlap or double counting. The, I'm not even sure I'm concerned about it yet. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I was curious. I'm not raising a concern. I was actually curious what I'm. I'm not sure whether that's double counting or not. I was curious whether you thought it was. I think it's an interesting question. Yeah, I think it, I think it's a question of being very being. I mean, this is I think one of the benefits of doing benefit cost analysis is it forces you to be clear about things um, and. Uh, uh, you know, for your examples, both the air pollution one and, and the crossing guard one, we need to be, um, in order to do a good benefit cost analysis, we need to be very precise about what we think would have happened in the absence of the policy, the baseline. Right. We need to be very clear about what we think would happen. Um, and I'm using the word what we think intentionally because all of these are expectations. They're not things we know with certainty um, would happen with the policy. And we need to be very clear about the time frame and the population over which we're estimating those things. Um, one issue that does come up, especially with large policies that affect lots of people, so this idea that you know maybe uh, policy A is affecting these you know hundred people in the population, and policy B is affecting a different hundred people in the population, assuming you have a large population, is um, is whether we need to revise the baseline. So. Um, you know, if my risk of dying, I don't even want to think about this since I'm getting older, but if my risk of dying um, is, you know, uh, two in a thousand this year, um, uh, we can't keep comparing each policy to a two in a thousand baseline. We need to think about how um, the incremental effect of preceding policies have changed my risk. Maybe my risk is now, you know, it's now one instead of two um, because uh, of everything that's come before it. I think um, that's often a. Um, is that not what you're getting at, or is that a, what you're? Well, getting it's at? It, you know it's funny because <laughs> we both know a lot about cost benefit analysis, uh -huh. and um, I think a listener who is uh, who's unfamiliar with some of these ideas would um, would be shocked that we would we would make the claim that these that these techniques have a way of clarifying <laughs> uh, the the questions that that policy analysts are are trying to figure out, right? Because it is, I mean, it's actually quite uh, technical. It's quite difficult. It requires very careful thought, um, and uh, and so you know maybe we could maybe maybe we could kind of change gears a little bit and just and 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 I would be curious your your thoughts about the kind of this meta question about the um, the degree to which cost benefit analysis can be quite difficult for a non-expert to um, to comprehend what's going on because as soon as you know you know we start talking about what is really a fairly straightforward policy this crossing guard policy right where the mortality risks are kind of straightforward like the causal pathways at least are straightforward and and so on and it actually quite quickly turns into a complex question involving, you know, what are the, um, you know, what are the, uh, the suite of policies that we're talking about? What are the populations? What is the time frame? What are the base rate risks that we're, you know, that we're talking about? And, you know, that's an, those are all, those are the right questions to ask. Absolutely. One has to ask those questions in, in any kind of cost, even of a simple policy, even the, almost like the simplest policy that you can think of, um, still requires, you know, kind of a nuanced 
really, understanding of, of these various features of the policy problem. Um, and I think that can be part of what folks resist, that leads folks to resist cost-benefit analysis, because then they start to say, well, this all, this all looks like gobbledygook. This just looks like you know, jargon, and I can't understand what's going on here. And it seems to, um, I think what what some of the critics of cost-benefit analysis will say is it's, it actually obscures the stakes rather than clarifies them. So, so what's your what's what's your response to that kind of take? Because I, I actually think that's fairly common: is that people start to hear things like baseline and population risk and et cetera, et cetera, and they. Um, they just think, well, you're overcomplexifying something that we can we can think about in more straightforward ways. Well, I think so. Let me. I feel like there's a, several different issues there, and um, one goes back to what we were talking about at the very beginning, which is that um, my experience has been um, that if we don't do some sort of analysis, um, people people always have an opinion or almost always have an opinion. Mm -hmm. Um, but they don't, it's not, it's unexamined. Um, I'll never forget, um, working on an environmental rule in the U S where, um, somebody asked me, aren't there benefits for women? And this environmental rule, this environment, this in the United States. Uh And, um, um, or, or I I think it was actually more a statement that we'd left out the benefits to women. Ah, And, uh, you know, and if I wasn't, if we weren't trying to do this benefit cost analysis, I don't think that person would have ever even asked the question. It would have just been implicit in their thinking. And after talking to this person for a while, I realized that what they were thinking about was actually low and middle income countries where people, where women walk to get water. Um, So having um, a a cleaner water source nearby has labor savings Mm -hmm. for the women. But we weren't talking about doing a policy in a low and middle income country. And, um, the person I was talking to hadn't really grappled with that in the U.S. We just go, well, most of us are fortunate enough to be able to just go and turn on our tap. Um, the uh, so I think it's it's you know it's uh, one of my colleagues likes to talk about it as an aid to thought, but I think it's a way of um, just getting people to talk about what they think the policy is all about um, and uh, and ask questions and uh, try and reach a deeper understanding of it. In terms of complexity, I think uh, uh, I think that's a real problem for us as a profession. What happens to me, and I think happens to all of us, is we get deeply into the details of our analysis. We write up the analysis the way we think about it and the way we did it, and nobody except us un- understands it. And we, I think we need to get much better at communicating. Um, and I think the other problem is that we ourselves need to be better trained. And some of that's there's a lot of issues in terms of technical training that would be really helpful. But I think learning how to communicate what we're doing is incredibly important. It's striking to me that I've had the honor privilege um, to teach many, many, many uh, incredibly smart students. And uh, it's not unusual for them to tell me that I'm over their head, even though I think I'm giving a simple explanation. I've had to you know, think hard about that over the years. And uh, try and um, communicate better in a more basic way. But it's a huge challenge for a profession um, and one that uh, I think, as you said, it gets us in big trouble. Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is, you know, it's just as we're thinking about this, I think part of it is that there's, you know, it's it's with any discipline, right? You start with some basic premises and then you kind of start to build from there and then you you build from there and build from there. And and what you end up with can be a fairly complex edifice that's built out of fairly, that could be built out of simple parts. And that's just the way it is. And it sometimes, you know, to a certain extent, it might just be that it's irreducible, like in order to understand, uh, you know, a complex biology, you know, you need to know the building blocks, right? And I think part of what is tricky about um, about cost-benefit analysis is that we're talking about public policy, Mm -hmm. right? So people don't go into... Uh, you know, a lecture on, you know, recent findings in, in, uh, in particle physics, or they don't go uh, open, you know, uh, a scientific journal like Nature and Science and open to the genetics section and expect to kind of understand what's going on, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas 
when we're talking about should we hire more crossing guards or even should we require more stringent air quality standards or should we require a rear-facing camera in new automobiles? You know, these are questions that in a democratic society, we think people, you know, people, people have opinions on, people feel that they ought to be able to have opinions on. And, um, you know, and, and maybe under some theories of democracy, we, th- what ultimately we do as a government should reflect what people think about, <laughs> you know, whether these are good ideas or not. Um, so there's this really big tension because on the, you know, I th- potentially be curious what you think about this. On the one hand, um, the fact is we're dealing with public policy questions in a democracy where people have often strongly held views. On the other hand, you know, these questions can be approached with an edifice, basically that is this cost-benefit analysis that we're talking about, that is a little bit more like a, uh, a sophisticated scientific enterprise. And I think we, we need to be careful about that, right? To not, you know, there's a lot of values questions. There's a scientific element to it, too, but it's also a sophisticated moral language with it. We'd say that's a highly articulated language about trade-offs and how you make those trade-offs and so on. And so whatever it is, it's a highly developed discourse. Let's call it that. I, I, I don't want to imply that it's a purely scientific discourse and make too many analogies to fields like biology, but it's a highly articulated discourse. Um, it's a highly developed discourse and that not that it's going to be difficult for most people to access without, you know, a pretty substantial amount of, of investment in, of time to understand it. So, so we have this dilemma. It's almost like a dilemma. On the one hand, the highly articulated discourse that can be difficult for the uninitiated. On the other hand, we're talking about public policy in a democracy <laughs> where folks are going to have opinions. Um, yeah. So what do we do about that? Like, what, what do you, what, what, uh, you know, you've confronted this issue many times over the years. How do you, how do you kind of think about this problem of negotiating these two, these two realities? Uh, I, s- several points, um, starting with, uh, well, um, I, I'll get to your core question in a minute, but let me, let me step back through a few other things first. Um, so any form of research, I don't care whether it's particle physics, chemistry, um, or benefit cost analysis has a lot of uncertainties. All you need to do is look at the news reports um, about scientific findings, and you'll see they get reversed, they get amended or um, uh, changed in different ways. Um, uncertainty is a fact of life, but it's also something that people don't like very much. Um, mm-hmm. They would much rather um, have somebody say to us, if you don't want to get COVID um, and do this, you definitely won't get COVID. Right, we, don't, nice. we don't want to hear all these messages about, well, you know, you could decrease your risk if you do this and that, um, aside from the question of whether, you know, there's lots. I, I probably shouldn't be using COVID as an example. So because, complicated. Such yeah. a complicated case. Well, but, but whatever, you know, yeah. people don't like uncertainty. That's clear, yeah. right? Yeah. People don't like uncertainty, yet there's uncertainty everywhere. And that's a challenge for those of us who, who recognize that. Um, the second is we always talk about benefit-cost analysis as a way of informing decisions. I don't think there's anybody who's a practitioner who thinks that benefit-cost analysis should be used to make the decision because there's a lot of um, normative value judgments that underlie the framework. Um, it, shouldn't be, it shouldn't be the only source of information because of those value judgments. But there's also a number of things that it doesn't address very well. It doesn't address legal and political issues. It doesn't uh, do a very good job of looking at the distribution of effects across people who are advantaged and disadvantaged. Um, so I think that uh, um, uh, one one thing that we need to be making more clear to a general audience is, hey, we're providing you with some information, but there's you know lots of other things you should be thinking about, including your own um, moral uh, beliefs and uh, other things. I also think though that we really need to think carefully about audience because um, you know I know when I'm talking to a scholarly audience, um, there's a lot of misperceptions about benefit cost analysis, um, but there's a it's a very different type of discourse than when I'm talking to um, to the general public. One of the most effective things I've seen is I was working on a radiation protection um, standard years and years ago, and. Uh, um, because you can't see or feel radiation unless <laughs> it gets really, really high. Um, uh, we were having real trouble communicating the amount of risk reduction that you would get 
um, from this um, from this regulation. And one of the other people in the project came up with this idea of having an illustration of how many hours you'd have to spend. Or it wasn't even hours, I think minutes. You have to spend an airplane flying at 30,000 feet um, to get the same dose of radiation. And that's what resonated. Um, and, you know, I don't think many people don't really care about the things that we debate about ac academically. They just want to know, um, you know, how much of you know, how bad is this going to be? How good is this going to be? And uh, we need to um, figure out ways of explaining that, you know, that, that that airplane exhibit could be reduced to a bunch of, you know, numbers and formula. But uh, the airplane um, worked a lot better in helping people understand what the benefits of this particular policy were. Does that make sense? Because I think that you and I live in an academic world where um, there's lots of uh, detailed technical debates about these things. But when I talk to people who you know, don't do this type of work. Um, what they really want me to tell them is, is this a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Um, well, that's, this is the tricky problem. This is exactly the tricky problem, right? Because that's exactly what folks want to hear. And in some sense, I think this was kind of what your, what one of your early points was, which is cost benefit analysis often, or analysts often don't want to provide that answer in part because they don't, they still don't know, right? There's uncertainty, right? So there's uncertainty about what regulatory consequences are gonna be on the ground. How many, you know, what is the real risk reduction? There's um, controversy about how to value those risk reductions. There's other, there's potentially other values in play, right? That um, they could, they, they could conflict or there's normative choices that go into cost benefit analysis. So like kind of an all things considered, is this a good idea or is this a bad idea? Arguably is something, now I think that in sometimes anyway, people say, I think what you said was that analysts don't wanna provide that. They don't see that as the as what's going on. It's a, it's a, it's a tool to inform analysis. But if the tool to inform analysis just says, yeah, this is a good idea, <laughs> or no, this isn't a good idea, then, um, you know, it's kind of, it is, it is ultimately making a quite a forceful recommendation. Well, I think there's actually two, two points there. The first is that um, we all, those of us who are inclined, the people who do this sort of work are people who like analysis. They like, you know, they mm -hmm. like having to sort through all these thorny things. And, you know, not everybody's like us, but uh, we get too much caught up in our own heads. Um, so I think a lot of the, oh, I can't tell you anything hand-waving is because we are so caught up in all the details of what we just did that we can't step back and say, oh, wait a minute. You know, I can tell you that um, uh, maybe maybe my message is there's so much uncertainty here that I don't really know if the benefits of this policy are going to um, exceed the cost. So you, Mr. or Mrs. Decision Maker, either need to figure out some other basis for the decision um, or maybe you decide not to do anything at all. Um, or we, I think most uh, things that I work on, we can pretty clearly say that the benefits can exceed the costs or, or that the costs exceed the benefits. We just can't tell you sort of right out to the decimal point with any certainty. Um, so I think it's a question of needing to get out of our own heads um, and uh, think about you know, in simple terms, what's the bottom line of what we've done? Mm -hmm. But also, I think when I say informed decisions, you know, the the what I mean by that is, um, you know, I could say to you, Michael, um, this crossing guard policy that you're you're thinking about, uh, my benefit cost analysis says that um, uh, the net benefits will be positive and could be significant. But um, the thing that I haven't looked at carefully or that I don't know um, that you, Michael, should take into account is the fact that most of these kids are getting hurt are very low income kids. Um, so, you know, we should add that into your decision making, along with the fact that, I don't know, maybe it's illegal to grab kids in the crosswalk. You know, um, so I think that uh, uh, we need to tell you, tell a story about what's in the analysis and what the analysis tells you. But we also need to be able to tell a story about the other things that, that you might want to think about. Right. Well, the legal part, you know, that's, you know, that, that agencies always have to deal with their, their constraints and what they can, can't do. Right. So we could say, well, this policy would be great if, uh, if you could do it, but you don't have the power to do it. Right. Um, in some sense, that's fairly straightforward. The other issue, maybe we could get into a little bit, cause this is a more of a 
I don't know if to call it a cutting edge issue. It's an issue that has been long discussed in, in uh, policy circles, right? Should we be, how should we accounting for the distribution of costs and benefits? And so uh, the, in the example you gave, that was the easy case. I would be like, look, there's more costs than benefits and the benefits will mostly go to folks who are, uh, you know, le- less well off. Well, that's, that's, a, that, that's fantastic. The real issue comes up when there's a conflict, right? So we say, okay, well, we, we do our cost benefit analysis, which still at this point, even this simple simple case, there's something a little mysterious about it for the average person. Like, ah, we look at the populations, we look at years, we look at these risks, da, 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 da. We have this value of statistical life that we're using, you know, we could explain where that comes from, but it's complicated. But anyway, we do our analyst thing and we come up with the bottom line, which says uh, the benefits, um, you know, are going to be greater than the cost. And we could even say that we looked at a suite of policies and this is the one that has the highest net benefits will be, you know, uh, adding crossing guards, you know, and that's, that's what's going to make most sense as opposed to changing around the routing for the kids or changing the school day or putting in a cross, a stoplight or whatever else. And so, um, so anyway, we looked at a suite of policies. This is the one that has the highest net benefits, but, you know, it's mostly going to help advantaged you know, highly advantaged kids. The alternative policy that we looked at actually would have lower net benefits. It would cost a little bit more, but it would also change who's going to be advantaged by the policy. And it's actually the case that the um, the kids who would be helped by the second policy, which let's say is rerouting traffic, the, the rerouting traffic policy, again, which is costlier, but it's going to actually help more disadvantaged kids. So that's where you have a conflict between what might be appealing on cost-benefit grounds, what, the one that has the highest net benefits, versus one that might be appealing on distributional grounds, the one that helps the least well-off. So this is a hard, a hard kind of problem. So, um, so one possibility is that we just kick that to the decision maker and we just say, look, we've done the, the kind of standard cost-benefit analysis. We've also looked at these distributional questions. And so we can tell you kind of who um, benefits and who um, who bears different kinds of costs. And uh, and then you policymaker, you need to decide. Um, and all their alternative would be to incorporate the distributional analysis somehow into the cost benefit analysis, which there's different technical ways of trying to do that. Um, I'm just curious what, you know, broadly at that, at that level where you have a conflict between, you know, what we might think of as normatively desirable distributional uh, or undesirable distributional effects versus um, efficiency effects, you know, just the total costs and benefits. How do you think that should, you know, given the state of knowledge now, what what should we be doing? Should we be trying to, should we do we just lay it off after the decision maker and that person has to do the calculus or, or is there something different we should be doing? So this is an area that I've been working a lot on recently. Um, and uh, I don't think... Uh, you phrase that as what should we be doing? And I think uh, we're still trying to figure that one out. Um, you and I both have a strong background in regulatory analysis, but I think it's important for us both to keep in mind that many, many benefit cost analyses are not done for regulations. Um, a lot of the work that I've been doing lately has to do with social programs um, mm-hmm. or with uh, policies um, that don't require a regulation. They just require somebody to, to, to fund the policy or a government to decide they're going okay. to- Spending programs, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it you know, could be a foundation mm-hmm. um, or it could be something that you know, a private firm could do. Um, and I think that that changes the, the role of um, the legal issues quite a bit. It's not just that we have requirements for what we need to do for regulatory analysis, it's that- um, you're in a different world. You know, if it's a foundation, you don't have Congress and the courts breathing down. Yeah, do whatever uh, they want, as yeah, long well, as it's not illegal. Yeah, right? almost whatever they want. They right. still have some constraints. Um, but I think that the, uh, um, it's as you know from having seen the stuff that we've written, people do not do a good job of distributional analysis, even if all they're trying to do is describe the distribution. Um, yeah, let me just, just, just to, sorry to, to intrude here, but you've done a lot of work on this very question of just, how is distributional analysis done at the at the federal level um, amongst agencies, and um, just this practical question of what are we currently doing? And so, yeah, as you were saying, some of the findings there is that we're not doing all that good of a job. Yeah, I mean, I think that, and this isn't just true for the regulatory stuff. It's also true in, um, you know, I've been doing a lot of work in uh, 
global health and development, same thing. Um, every single guidance document, there's probably some exception out there that if anybody listens to this, they're going to tell me exists, but I don't think I've ever read a guidance document that doesn't say, along with the estimate of net benefits, you need to tell us the distribution across mm-hmm. the participants. Almost never see that. Um, I have many theories why not, but I, I think one piece of it is that it's often fairly easy to think about um, or at least estimate how benefits are distributed. Um, you know, you know, um, you know what the uh, population is who gets heart disease. So if you have a policy that reduces heart disease, um, you can just estimate that it'll be distributed the same way those base cases are, unless there's something about your um, your policy that makes one subgroup affected more than the other. Um, costs are very difficult because often costs are incurred by a government agency or by private industry. And you need to think about how is that agency or that industry going to react to the imposition of additional costs? Are they going to you know, absorb it by decreasing their profits? Are they going to lay people off, reduce people's salaries, increase the prices of the product? And we know very little about that. And if you can't estimate who's going to be affected by the costs and the benefits, it's very hard to do any of these sort of more sophisticated approaches that um, look at, for example, people's preferences for for distribution. Um, Mm -hmm. um, As I think you know, there are approaches for uh, weighting costs and benefits by um, uh, um, we always talk about them by the marginal utility of income, which is a fancy way of saying the fact that, saying that a, a poor person, um, a, an additional dollar to a poor person means a lot more than an additional dollar to a millionaire. But there are also um, variants on that theme, uh, like what gets called prioritarianism, um, that try to uh, provide greater weight to people who are disadvantaged across a number of different dimensions. It might be health, um, it might be something else. But we can't apply. So all those approaches are being developed. People are experimenting with them. Um, but in order to apply them, we need to get much better at this this sort of starting point of describing um, who bears the benefits. I mean, who bears the cost and who receives the benefits. I, I think there's ways of doing that. Um, but we need to uh, think hard about that. And we need to start implementing the ways of doing it rather than just uh, waving our hands around and saying, oh, distribution is important. Um, and then that. Uh, addressing it in our analysis. Um, But I think those sticky questions, the sticky questions about, okay, you've got something that has uh, net costs, but would advantage poor, would be really good for poor people. Um, I think no matter whether you do some sort of weighting um, inside the analysis itself, or whether you just um, uh, display the results without um, uh, doing anything to weight, the effects on the advantage versus the disadvantage, it still comes down to a normative judgment that needs to be made by somebody. Um, and uh, right, this is the, that's interesting, right? Somebody yeah. needs to make this normative judgment. Yeah, and and you know, if it's government policy, it's the government agency or maybe the legislature. If it's a foundation spending program, it's whoever makes their decisions. And uh, I don't know, I don't, I think that's outside the benefit cost analysis. I don't. My job is. Fortunately, maybe not to make these decisions. My job is to make sure that the person who is making this decision has some good information in front of them. Right. Okay, good. And so, but just to maybe um, clarify or reiterate a point you were making there, which is just, it's actually quite difficult. So there's just to maybe quickly summarize how this debate has unfolded over the past, you know, know, 20 odd years, you know, cost benefit analysis tends basically, and it's kind of traditional form focuses on aggregate costs and benefits. So if we take our crossing guard example, we're not looking at whether the kids are advantaged or disadvantaged. We're not looking at, you know, who pays the cost, whether it's the city or uh, individual drivers, if it's like traffic rerouting is the, is the policy. We're not interested in that kind of question. We're solely focused on, you know, just summing everything just gets summed up and you look at the aggregate number and you say, okay, you know, what are the benefits and costs look like in total? Mm. And a consistent critique that has been offered over the years is, well, that is, there's something wrong with that. You, that we ought to, as a society, be sensitive to who bears the costs and ben- benefits. And in particular, we should care about costs and benefits that are borne 
more by people who are less well off. Um, exactly for the reason that you describe, at least, um, Lisa, which is the diminishing marginal utility of consumption, which is just exactly that, you know, a cost that's imposed on someone who is doesn't have a lot of money, that's a, a much bigger hit to their well-being than a cost than the same cost that's imposed on someone who has a lot of dough. And so that's a kind of a very straightforward normative idea. And, and cost-benefit analysis, again, in its most traditional form, is not sensitive to that. Uh, that basic normative um, uh, impulse that many people share. And so um, so the, the line then says, as you note, in most guidance documents and most of the, the dictates that uh, agencies follow for doing cost-benefit analysis, um, they, it will say something like, and you should do distributional analysis too, <laughs> right? Yeah. But the problem is it's really tough. It's really tough. And I think maybe we can just spend a couple of minutes um, investigating the, the the difficulties there. And, and again, you've you've really you know got the 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 experience um, with you know real world analyses, and you've gone through and you've looked at agencies' analyses and what they're doing. So an example that I use sometimes is a very classic one. I believe it's in the the A4 circular actually. Um, the existing uh, government wide guidelines on cost benefit analysis is say you improve air quality in a in a low-income neighborhood, then you might say, well, that is a benefit that accrues to low-income people. Well, not necessarily. If everyone there is a renter and their rents go up as a consequence of their, their, their where they're living, the property is now more, the, it's more valuable. There's more demand for that. Uh, for that real estate uh, as a as a rental unit, so the landlords charge more money, and they end up extracting some of that benefit. And so, actually, the benefit goes to wealthy landowners. So you might think in the first instance that the benefit goes to low-income people, but it actually there's a kind of a transfer there that happens in the marketplace where the landlords extract some of the benefit. Well, and it's even worse than that. If you clean up the air in that that uh, that neighborhood. Wealthier people are going to move in. Exactly. Then, then there's a gentrification issue, right? Yeah. So then you've got over time. So even so, there's all these complex dynamics that affects. So we might have a benefit or a cost that, in the first instance, is you know the benefit goes to low-income people, right? Because they're living where there's the air quality, and the cost might be imposed on, say, a, a local polluter. But then the cost can get shifted to consumers. Maybe that it affects the taxes that are paid um, and the like. So, so what do you think of that? I mean, you know, someone might say, "Okay, this is just too complicated. This is impossible." Um, and so, we should really focus cost-benefit analysis on aggregate effects, just looking at wherever the inst- the first instance is, and not trying to tease through all these distributional effects. Or, is your sense, you know, given that you've, you know, really have gotten into this in a in a bunch of different contexts, that actually it is worth the candle that we we can do this. It might be complicated, but we can do complicated things, and um, it'll be imperfect and uncertain. But that uh, what the information that we would get out of that would have at least enough value to justify the analysis. Mike, you just described why it is that doing this sort of work is so fun. It's funny talking, you know, I'm, uh, I've been working for long enough, a lot of the people I'm surrounded by are retiring, but um, um, because they feel like they've been doing the same thing over and over again for years. But okay. there's no danger of ever doing that if you do benefit-cost analysis because mm-hmm. it, there's so many interesting issues to explore. Um, but um, I think that, you know, what is – this really, really gets back to um, why, what brings people like me to benefit cost analysis. Um, I fundamentally believe that benefit cost analysis is an important contributor to good policy decisions. And by, by good policy decisions, I mean policy, policies that will increase the welfare of the people affected. Um, when I, maybe I can tell you a short story. When I first started working, I was, I worked at a, Maybe I shouldn't tell this story. Um, how many people listen to this podcast? Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I worked. I worked in some place. No, I worked uh, in a, a. Let me keep this vague. I worked in a federal agency where we had um, um, the experience over and over again of political appointees making what seemed like arbitrary decisions um, for legislative folks. You know, they'd say, "Oh, I'm just gonna I'm gonna do X because my buddy is." thinks that's the right thing to do, or I'm going to do X because I feel like disagreeing with you. I mean, that literally was what I had somebody tell me once. No, no rationale. 
Um, and this is a benefit cost analysis is a way of pushing back against that, of saying, here's some information um, that I'm hoping you will take into account in your decision making um, instead of making these arbitrary decisions. And uh, so, but if, if my goal in terms of doing this type of work, which I think it's not just my goal. I think it's the goal of most of us who do this sort of analysis is to improve the welfare of the people who are affected. Distribution is an important piece of that. Um, and I, I really don't think we can ignore it. So it's, you know, you're right. It's hard. That's what makes it fun and interesting. Um, but it's also important. And uh, I think we need to uh, we need to work at it. Now, are there cases that you've come across where you've seen that you think that an agency has done a good job at, at, at some kind of distributional analysis? It's interesting. It's interesting that you asked that because I think that recently, at least in the U.S., um, there's been a lot of pressure to improve distributional analysis. And I have not gone through everything that federal agencies are doing um, to try and see whether some of them have uh, Gone far enough along to deal with the cost side because that's that's where that's where the challenges are. I think there's lots of people, lots of uh, agencies and scholars who've been able to think about the distribution of of benefits, you know, mortality and morbidity risk reductions, and other types of benefits. The one place where you know people have done a lot of this is with uh, macroeconomic modeling, where you have really large policies that you can feed into these um, um, these big computer well, general equilibrium models, because they allow you to, in different ways, often model households, they, they have mechanisms that allow you to um, estimate the effects on, on the rich and the poor. But even there, they're making, underneath all the complexity of these models, there's some very strong assumptions about things like whether costs are passed on as changes in prices. And these these models tend to be useful only for very large policies because there's enough uncertainty in them that smaller policies sort of get lost in the error term. You don't really end up with a good understanding of the effects. Um, but I, th- I think uh, that's an interesting question. And one of your next shows, you should pull on a bunch of the uh, federal economists who are, are working on this sort of stuff and see if uh, they've uh, they've made some progress on this, because I really don't know, and the cost side, because I really don't know. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, it's... it's, it's um you know, it's it's a tough issue. I think that you know maybe the kind of the final just note on all of this is, you know, it's easy to talk in very general terms about you know well we should look at costs and benefits we should kind of examine the pros and cons of our policies um, we should do things like account for the distribution of those costs and and benefits and I think if there's a if there's a lesson uh, for 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 folks who who aren't um, deeply steeped in all of these questions. Uh, if there's a lesson from our podcast today, it's that, you know, it turns out that there's just, it's actually, even though conceptually fairly easy to state the the goals of this research program, um, it's very, very complex to carry out in practice. It's conceptually complex. There's enormous data requirements. Um, there's careful thought that's required. There are assumptions that are going to be made and, and so on. And so, um, so you've stuck with it, you know, not, notwithstanding all of, that, all of that complexity over the years. And so, um, yeah, I'm just curious if you have any kind of parting thoughts on on, on your on your general takeaway from the from the fact that you know that this is a very sensible thing to do. At least, uh, you know, arguably, there's a lot of lot of smart people who think that it's a sensible thing to do, but it is also a very difficult and complex um, complex thing to do. Oh, I think. Uh- um, if there's people out there listening to this who are looking for something that's incredibly interesting and challenging to do and who um, and who are very interested in increasing the uh, social welfare of their country, state, region, the world, uh, there's a great, great sort of thing to be working on. It's uh, I think it's really exciting. Um, it's really challenging. It keeps your brain Keeps your brain young. Can I say that now that I'm over 65? Um, and uh, and I think it's incredibly important. And there is so much that we can do both to extend extend the framework into different policy areas, but also to improve it. Yeah, great. Well, thanks so much for a really um, fun and interesting conversation today, Lisa. Um, it's always fun chatting with you. And uh, thanks for all the great work that you've done on these issues over the years. Well, thank you for inviting me on. It's always great to talk to you, Michael. And listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, 
please let us know. You can give us a like, a rating, subscribe to the podcast, and follow us on social media. It'd be great to hear from you. Till next time.